Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Now, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, we're going, to cont- we're going to continue our series in the book of Exodus. And we are now in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, we're going to be in verse 1. But as we make our way to Exodus 16, 1, I will remind you that now we have journeyed through the first major portion of the book of Exodus. The first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus Well, it's all about liberation, about getting out of Dodge, about being set free from the thumb of Pharaoh. And the first 15 chapters, well, it chronicles this story of faith where the people who were enslaved by the back-breaking, brick-making work of Pharaoh and empire, they were set free not only physically, but we have been discussing how in addition to their physical bondage for more than, than four centuries, Their imaginations were enslaved. They were no longer able to freely imagine the possibility of a life of faith and freedom. And there's something dangerous happens when when your imagination is enslaved. Moses comes along to declare, set my people free. But Pharaoh doubles down and then God sends a consecutive series of ten plagues to weaken and dismantle the infrastructure of empire and Egypt. And they're set free. They're set free into the wilderness. And they now come to the first major uh, crisis of faith. They're at the Red Sea and they can't go any further and they can't go right or left. Pharaoh is pressing in because he had a change of mind and God splits the sea open. And in splitting the sea open, they walk through and in many ways are born into a new life. But now the question is, do they want it? The first 15 chapters is about liberation. The the next three chapters, 16, 17, and 18, represent the next major section in the book of Exodus, and we're going to refer to it as the wilderness sojourn. The wilderness sojourn, in which now that they have been set free, they now begin to ask questions like we all ask when we're all set free from whatever thing it was that kept us enslaved. We ask ourselves, are we sure we really wanted this? Because yes, it was awful in Egypt, and yes, we were, it was killing us, but at least we were familiar with our way of death. And here we are in the midst of a wilderness of unknown. And it's going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be promised a land full of milk and honey. But until we get there, we don't know if we would prefer the suffering that we used to know over the promise that we have not yet seen. And so these stories that unfold in chapters 16, 17, and 18 are stories that are not just about them. They're stories that represent a kind of life pattern in you, in me. 
These are the stories that provoke the questions in us about how deeply do we really want to be free. That's the context as we open up chapter 16, verse number 1. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had been de departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, in the land of Egypt, when we, ah, we sat by flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this, this whole assembly with hunger. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Today I want to talk for just a few moments about hangry moods, bizarre foods, and craving carbs. Hangry moods, bizarre foods, and craving carbs. Will you pray with me, God? We stop for long enough to acknowledge that this time together will be a waste of time if all we hear are my words. That is why we ask that your Holy Spirit, which is alive and, and active in this place and, and in our hearts, we pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken the soul that we may be able to hear the word of the Lord in these ancient texts so that our lives may be transformed because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hangry moods. Just by a show of hands in both rooms here and the FLC, I want to I know how many of you live with somebody or do life with somebody who from time to time gets hangry. Okay, yeah, I've just incited problems in your home by doing that. Hangry, when you're, you're, you're angry, you're moody, you're in a foul mood, you don't know why, and maybe it's because you hadn't eaten well a few years ago, just two or three years ago. Snickers had the best commercials to describe what it's all about when we get hangry, a, a combination of hungry and angry. Take just a moment and see what I mean. So you guys grew up together? Yes, yeah, since third grade. What are you looking at? I w I'm not looking at anything. We're not good I enough don't... for you. You look for something else? No, I, just, I don't know. What are you, That's... big supermodels? Oh, oh, yeah. Jesus. Jesus. Supermodels? Oh, what are you, model gloves? What are you doing? A girl's totally into me. Brad, eat a Snickers. Why? Because you get a little angry when you're hungry. Better? Better. So, ladies. So, losers. Stacy, relax. I'm sorry. You're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> Isn't that great? What do you model? Gloves? Okay. So you're not you when you're, when you're hangry, right? When you're angry, you're not you. You get a little angry when you're hungry. The fact is there may be some more truth to being hangry than we think. When your blood sugar drops, when your glucose levels drop, it triggers the production of certain 
uh, hormones in your brain, cortisol, uh, adrenaline, even a, a kind of chemical, um, a, a, a neuropeptide Y, which has been known to, to kind of trigger aggression in people. Yeah. So when you're hangry, it's a real thing. I, and I don't know if the Israelites were hangry, but I do know this. They were complaining and they were grumbling, and some translations say they were murmuring, right? And there are, I just, there's more than one way for the stomach to growl, see? Yes, when, when your stomach growls, you can get hangry if you don't eat soon enough, but I just want you to know this morning that our appetites long for more than just carbohydrates and proteins and fats. There is a kind of deficiency to the appetite when we don't eat spiritually as well we have a spiritual appetite that only one is capable of feeding and when we don't feed it there is a different kind of hangry and I don't know if they were hangry the, the Israelites but I do know that in their midst of their complaining their complaining their murmuring was initiated because they were missing something in their diet in the midst of their complaining, this is what happens to us. We don't see things right. I mean, we don't, keep, we don't have the right perspective when we're hangry, whether physically or spiritually hangry. And, and, and suddenly, if you're, if you're missing that interior feeding spiritually, it changes the way that you view and do your life, doesn't it? Because the text, this is crazy. The text says not only were they grumbling about their present situation, but they were beginning to rewrite history about their former situation. They were starting to long for life in Egypt. What is wrong with you, right? This is what verse 3 says. If only oh, we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread Sat by flesh plots. And one translator even translates that part as, we sat by boiling cauldrons of meat. Well, the only, the only meat in this story is bologna. Okay? <laughs> These guys were slaves. They didn't have meat. They didn't stand by boiling cauldrons of meat as a primary protein source. They were slaves. Meat was a, was a luxury. And yet... So they're hangry. Something's missing in their interior appetite, which causes them to grumble about their present circumstance. And in grumbling, it helps them rewrite, rewrite the history of their former circumstance. And, and we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, in our relationships, in our families, maybe even at work. Uh, oh, it used to be so much better when so-and-so was the president of this company uh things ran different or maybe even in your church or in a nation there there's a period of time when we we began to think of like the mid-20th century as like the heyday the golden era because it's post-world war ii the economy is surging and you step back for just a moment and you look at that yesteryear and you say oh well you know the families they look like they stayed together better they appeared like they stayed together better the dad working most of the moms at home and the kids seemed to obey, yes, sir, no, ma'am, you know, etc. Everything seemed to be just fine unless you were a person of color, a minority, 
a female, elderly, if you had a kid with special needs or disabilities? Do you know that in 1940, only 3% of African Americans in the South could register to vote because of Jim Crow laws, literacy tests, poll taxes, right? If you were a woman who wanted a professional degree or perhaps a vocation beyond where your family had taken you thus far, if you wanted to advance, in some situations you couldn't apply for a loan or a business license without the co-signature of a trusted man. If you were a senior citizen above the age of 65 in those days, about a quarter of you, a quarter of the senior citizens in that period that I'm talking about, lived below the poverty line, no Pensions, no safety net, no way to care for our aging. If you were raising a child who was, was a special needs child or had any kind of disability, there was no understanding at the time of the spectrum upon which many kids find themselves and how to care for them or guide them or provide a, a, an environment in which they can still thrive given their challenges. And yet we can lump everything in yesteryear as, oh, back in Egypt, man, we just, oh, we had boiling cauldrons of meat. Really? So when we become hangry, it affects not only how we interpret the moment, but how we look back and interpret the past. And it caused us some serious questions for the people here in our text because they had forgotten the 20-hour days of back-breaking brick-making. And here they are, oh, longing for the day when... And that's something that happens to any of us and all of us. If we don't have a part of the appetite being fed, the spiritual appetite that we all hunger for, it can cause us to see life and even our past and our future in different ways. This is why during uh, this part of the text, this part of the story, I think I can hear the music of Barbara Streisand. Memories light the shadows of my mind. Misty, water-colored memories. Listen to these words. Of the way we were. You can almost sing it. You can hear it, can't you, in your heart? Can you hear the tune? Scattered pictures of the smiles we left behind. Smiles that we gave to one another for the way we were. And can it be that, that it was all so simple then? Or has time rewritten every line? If we had the chance to do it all again, tell me, would we? Could we? Memories. They may be beautiful, and yet what's too painful to remember, we simply choose to forget. Ah, oh, yes, this is so bad here in the wilderness because, oh, we never used to be this hungry back in Egypt. Oh, man, we had all kinds. We boiling cauldrons of meat. They had a hangry mood which required a special kind of food which takes us to the next movement in our sermon. Bizarre foods. Now, you know that I'm married to a chef and that means that from time to time when I go walking through the living room and the TV is on, <laughs> no. sometimes, sometimes it's on the cooking channel and there's some great 
cooking shows on. There's Iron Chef and there's um, diners, drive-ins and dives, right? That's, by the way, I want that guy's job. I mean, if this preaching gig doesn't work out, you know, I want to go around the country just eating good food, right? Well, there is another show that's on, and ironically, it's on not the Food Channel, but the Travel Channel, and it's about food, and it's called Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern. Have you seen this show? So Andrew Zimmern goes around the entire world eating foods that you would not imagine are foods, foods that maybe you have never tried or even considered trying, foods like cow heart and fish heads and chocolate-covered grasshoppers and insects and things like that. He goes all around the world tasting these foods that are so strange you and I would never have considered eating it. And, and as strange as it sounds, I think about, I think about that show when I think about what happens next, because here they are, they're hangry, they're, there's something missing in their spiritual diet which causes them to see their present situation and reinterpret their past situation, and now they're distorted, almost like looking in a rearview mirror where things say in the mirror, objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear. You look back and everything is distorted and they're looking back and everything is distorted and God knows that they are experiencing this kind of hangry mood so he introduces a bizarre food. We pick up in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days so here is God and it's a setup it's a test but not in a sinister way it's for the purpose of truly assessing are these people ready to be a people are these people capable of trusting me in a way like they have never had to trust anybody? Because they have just come from Pharaoh and God is setting a test before them. I want you to gather just enough for each day, not, not two days. On the sixth day, I'll let you do that because we'll get to that later. But right now, one day at a time, I need you to trust me with the rising of each sun and the setting of the same. I want you to trust because God is attempting to test. Can you trust me in a post-Pharaoh world? Pharaoh could not be trusted. It was all about Pharaoh in Egypt. It was all about Pharaoh's ego and building up an infrastructure to himself and nothing he said could be trusted. And now here they are, they've been set free from that and they're in the wilderness, but the question is, will they learn to trust after having not trusted for more than four centuries? Do you know anybody in your life for whom they've been injured, they've been scarred, they've been bruised in some way? Maybe they were abused or a loved one cheated on them or left them, walked out? Do you know a child who was raised in an abusive situation? You know, when we learn to put our guard up and to not trust, you, you could even do this with, with pets. You'll find an abused pet and rescue a pet. And in time, in time, they may learn to trust again, but for a very long time, they're skittish and they'll, they'll not trust. The truth is, 
If you've been abused for so long, if you've learned to not trust for so long, it is hard to learn to put your guard down and become vulnerable again. And God, is this the test, this food test? Can you learn slowly to trust me and let me prove that when I say something, I, I back it up? So we continue with the text. The Lord said to Moses, and spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness, was a fine flaky substance, as fine as the frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? When they did not know what it is. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is fascinating to me. It's fast compelling, really, to me. Did you know that even right now, today, that right now, that the quail will still migrate from the south of Europe across the Mediterranean Sea and make its way to the Sinai, exhausted, so exhausted that they're slow enough to catch. Did you know that what many believe may have been the manna, although we can't reproduce it now, may have come through the agency of a tree lice that secretes a particular substance high in carbohydrates and sugar, here is God using the natural order of things, using systems at play, rhythms at work, already around them to provide for them day to day. And I just, I want to give you a little side sermon. This one's free, okay? The fact is, I, I sometimes when I read this wonder to myself, how many times and in how many ways does God provide manna from heaven and quail in the evening for me when I'm looking for it to fall from above when really it's that fine as dew because it's already right there around me. What if God has already provided for you everything you've been asking for, but it comes in the person of the one you live close to or next to? Maybe it's come in, in, in a way that you did not expect and you don't recognize it. The beauty of this text is that when the Israelites saw it, the first thing they said was, what is it? We don't recognize this way of providing. We don't know this food. In fact, Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word, the, literally the Hebrew word for manna is manhu, which literally is a question in Hebrew. It means, what is it? What is it? That's what manna means. But it's provocative to me because in this text, there's something more bizarre of food than just this high carbohydrate that they're eating. There's something more bizarre than quail at night and manna in the morning. The thing that's bizarre is that they are being introduced not only to a new food, but to a new way of receiving food. Do you know that in Egypt, you don't get bread without work? In Egypt, you don't get anything without work. I mean, you don't live without work. In Egypt, under Pharaoh, the Pharaonic mind is you only are worthy to exist if you can prove your worth. 
You are only worthy to exist if you can demonstrate your worth, care, and providence, and concern. And for the first time, they are being introduced to a brand new food, and it's not called quail, and it's not called manna. The brand new food is called grace. And for the first time in their lives, they are being introduced to something new in the diet, to the spiritual interior diet that they've been longing for for a long time. The soul's been growling for it, for grace. And they don't know what to do with it, and maybe you don't either. Half the time, I don't know what to do with it. Because grace means God loves you because there is nothing that you've done to deserve it. Grace means God loves you and is crazy about you and there's not a thing you can do about that. That's grace. And the problem is that is as strange or bizarre a food to you or to me as manna from heaven because we grow up learning somehow to earn our love, to earn our bread, to earn our worth. And so maybe somebody in here, maybe somebody on this campus grew up learning that I'm only able to be loved if I follow the rules and if I am perfect. And maybe you learned that you can only be loved if you prove yourself as indispensable to everyone else. I can help you. I can rescue you. Just trust me. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you, right? Or maybe you learned that you're only worthy of love if, if you succeed or you achieve or you climb or you can point to some document on the wall that says you're worth something. Or maybe if you stand out and you're exceptional and you're not like the others, or maybe you were only told that you were lovable or worth love because of what you know. Uh, this one's the brainiac in our family. This one is intelligent. He has all the answers. She's the one with the degree. She's the Einstein of the family. So you keep learning to play that role. Or maybe your script is loyalty. We will love you if you are loyal to our family, our company, our system, our church, our country. Maybe you learned that you're only worthy of love if, oh, I don't know, if you're fun. If, if, if you're the one who makes everybody laugh or you're the one who is adventurous or maybe even the class clown, you're the one ready for the new thing. Or maybe you're the leader and you know what the answers are. And you're the rock of the family, you're the steady, you're the ballast in the ship when it comes to your company. Or, and as long as you remain in that, you can have all the bread you want. Maybe you learn to be the peacemaker, and you're the one in your family or in your group of friends with, for whom you're able to see what everyone needs and able to make peace between warring factions in your own system. I don't know what it is causes you to think I just know there's a variety of things that cause me to think that I got to earn love that if I'm going to eat bread I'm going to have to make bricks all day long but in a post pharaoh world the economy is not production the economy is grace yeah grace because we're all hangry we're hangry and we got angry moods but God has provided oh this bizarre food that once you eat it, you can't get enough. Which leads me to craving carbs. To craving carbs. Let's talk confessionally for a moment. You know, I've told you before that when I behave, I'm right on top of things. When I don't, I don't. When I'm working out, I want to eat right. 
And when I'm eating right, it makes me want to work out. And sometimes I'll restrict the carbs that I eat, but if I skip two or three days of working out, my problem is not that I will eat a Chips Ahoy cookie. My problem is that I will eat a sleeve of Chips Ahoy cookies. Anybody feel me? Come on. The problem is once you get it to, once I get a taste of some carb that I'm craving, I can't get enough of it. The trouble is you can have too much of a good thing. And I think about this as I move into this part of the sermon, as we move into this part of the text, in terms of what is next in the text, we recognize that now they've tasted grace. What happens next? This is what the Lord commanded. Gather as much of it as as, uh, each of you needs. An omer to a person, according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so. Some gathered more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed, and Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms, and it became foul, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it as much as each needed, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. This is an interesting part of the text. Part of the story, their story and our story, because God is not only testing them, can you trust me in a post-Pharaoh world? Can you trust me? But he's also testing them and teaching them how to become content. Content with God's daily bread, with God's day-to-day provisions. One day I was visiting an old friend, Clyde, 92 years old, in East Tennessee, church where I served. I went to the hospital to see him as he was dying. And my parting words as I was beginning to leave the hospital room was, well, Clyde, I'm continuing to pray for you. Let's do this one one day at a time. And in his 92-year-old wisdom, as a farmer his entire life, he said, well, preacher, one day at a time is all we get. And God is testing them. Will you be able to trust me one day at a time? You can't store this stuff up. I want you to learn in the wilderness to be content. And if there's any struggle that vexes our common life together, you and me, it is that we don't know how to be content. We don't know how to live with contentment. Because we'll take what we have, which, by the way, free sermon here, just a little side sermon. What we have is more than most of the world. So before we just go crazy and, and get into kind of a whining fest here, what we have in this room on this campus and these zip codes around us is more than 98% of the world. But we are not immune to looking at what we have and saying to ourselves, oh, this is great, I'm grateful for it, I'm thankful, God, give it to me, but, but what, if, what if tomorrow morning I wake up and, and, and it's not there? What if tomorrow morning I wake up and God has changed God's mind about how God takes care of me day to day to day, and so I better put some of this aside. It's just wise 
financial planning. It's just wise to take some of my manna and put it in a Tupperware dish and stick it in my tent so that tomorrow I'm able to ensure that I'm not left without because I'm going to take care of me and I'm going to take care of mine and mine will not have any needs, right? So I'm going to take this manna and the trouble is we always look at the manna we have in front of us and allow fear to be our interpretive lens. And we look at it and say, oh, this is great. Man, look, wow, we've been blessed. But, but what if, of course, there is this one scenario in which it might not be enough for tomorrow. It's enough today, but not tomorrow. And tomorrow, of course, that thing's going to happen. I better put some aside. And fear drives us to discontentment. Do you know that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talked about contentment? In, in Philippians 4, This is what he said, I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry and of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you kind of almost don't expect that last verse to come up because typically here in the last several years, we have attributed that verse to like the Tim Tebow's out there, right? To the athletes who, who take that verse and, and say, you know what, I can do all things. So going into this game, this match, this thing that I'm about to compete, I'm gonna, I can do all things through Christ. And that is monumentally true. But it's important for us to recognize that the whole I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me verse comes in the context of Paul talking about being content. He says, look, day to day, I know, I know what it's like to have stuff. And I know what it's like to be broke. I've been everywhere on that spectrum from having a bunch of stuff to being completely flat broke. And I have learned the secret. And the secret is that all along that spectrum, the only thing that satisfies is Christ in me. That Christ in me. Do you know that in the Gospel of John and other places in the New Testament, one of the dominant metaphors to describe Jesus is bread. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the only thing that can nourish the kind of hunger that you feel grumbling in your belly. Down deep in the soul, I feed you in such a way so that you look at your manna that you have each morning and say, you know, it may not look like much, but I'm going to trust that it will feed me for this day. What is it in your life that causes you to look at your manna and fear. Well, the story continues in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers apiece. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, uh, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of the solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. And all this is left over, uh, all this left over, put it aside, keep it into the morning, put it aside as Moses commanded them, and it did not become foul. There were no worms in it. Do you know that before this text, those who looked at their manna and said, this is wonderful, it's grace, it's a brand new food, it's a bizarre food, not having to worry about the bread of Pharaoh anymore. Here it is, they stored it, not trusting. And the text that we read a moment ago said, in the morning they opened it up and it was filled with worms. It was maggot infested. 
which is an image that the writer intends for us to hold out in front of us in worship. That is what a lack of trust in God looks like to God. Maggot-infested manna. But here he says, look, if you trust me, I'm going to give you six days worth of manna, one day at a time, and on the sixth day, I'll give you twice. Now, why does he break the rule about the, the sixth day? It's because he's preparing them to get in a rhythm of taking Sabbath breaks. Another thing that you and I are not very good at. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks when we get into the fourth commandment, by the way. So heads up. But when it comes to taking Sabbath, he wants to create a rhythm in them while they're in the midst of the wilderness still learning to become a people. He creates a rhythm so that every day I have enough, 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 and on the sixth day I'll have twice enough so that on the seventh day I am intended, I am built to stop in the image of God I've been created, and on the seventh day, God stopped, so on the seventh day, I stopped in order to look back over all of the manna that has been provided for me and to look back over all of the collecting that I did in the morning and the quail hunting I did at night. Do you see, it's not that Sabbath is an invitation to just not work and let God do everything. God still gives instructions for us to work. In the morning, you will gather this stuff. God has some expectations, but the seventh day, the Sabbath, is so that we might, in worship, look back and think about our work, but to recognize, yes, as hard as I worked to collect that manna, as hard as I worked 40, 50, 60 hours a, a, a week to collect those quail, it was God who brought the quail and God who sent the manna. And here in worship, if I don't stop once a week to come to worship, I won't be able to stop and consider the fact that that's how I got here. If I just blow right through Sunday, if I just blow right through worship and come maybe once a month, once every other month, here's what happens. I blow right through all of my working and I assume that my life is a product of my hard work. Worship stops us. And, and this is why Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel put it this way. This is what he said. The solution of mankind's most vexing problem is not found in renouncing technical civilization, but in attaining some degree of independence from it. We step away from work, and do you know why? So that work doesn't enslave us again. You don't live in Egypt anymore. You don't have to work seven days straight without stopping long enough to recognize the gift of God. And this is what Sabbath does. In Sabbath, in Sabbath rest, we rest from our labors in order to remain free from enslavement to them. And I'm telling you this as a pastor and all of my pastors in this room and the next room will give me a hearty amen when I say pastors can be enslaved to work just as well as anybody else. So we step away in some ways. Once a week, once a day, once an hour, once a breath to recognize we didn't get this manna on our own. No, no. See, in worship, some things happen. In worship, we dismantle the lie that there isn't enough and that the sky is falling, and that we'd be better off if we can just return to the familiar sands of Egypt. <laughs> In worship, we learn to curb our cravings for the bread of Pharaoh. Why would you want to go back to Pharaoh bread when manna comes with such nourishment of its own? 
So maybe that's your prayer today. Maybe that's my prayer today. Maybe we come to the place where we acknowledge in a kind of worshipful moment, God, I recognize I'm prone to get hangry. I am prone to be in a hangry mood because I go for a long period of time and my interior appetite is not fed by the one thing that you can provide. So I'm here to allow you (laughs) to feed me bizarre foods. Because I recognize when I'm hangry, my life is out of perspective and I misinterpret my present and I rewrite my past and I fear my future. So bring on your bizarre foods, the food of grace and mercy, the grace of compassion and love. Bring it on and I will eat deeply and I will drink of that fountain. Because I think that it, it may be only you who could help me curb my appetite for the, for the bread of Pharaoh. I don't want his bread anymore. Feed me till I want no more. Let's pray. Most loving God, that is our prayer. That's our our prayer that you would recognize that we recognize what a sinister cycle this is. Our soul growls for something that nothing in this world can provide, and yet we keep feeding it with lesser breads. Will you show us this day what it means to trust you one day at a time to gather only the manna that you have provided, the one manna, the one bread, the one meal that is around us, the one that you bring. Teach us how to trust it and not worry about tomorrow so that you who hold Tomorrow in your hands may be the God of tomorrow just as you are the God of today. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen.